Welcome to Insurance Uncut, a show all about insurance. Each week, we'll be taking a different topic that impacts the insurance industry and discussing it with our guest. If you work in the general insurance market or have an interest in insurance, this podcast is for you. I'm Charles Cronier. And I'm Jessica Clark. And Insurance Uncut is brought to you by the insurance team at LCP. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on the show or any topic suggestions, so please get in touch to share your ideas and feedback. Let's kick off with this week's episode. Hi, Charles. Uh, back again this week. What have you been up to this week? Oh, well, I've just got back from seeing my family in South Africa, so that was great fun. First time in two years. This is episode... We're on to episode five. I can't quite believe that. We are rattling through them quickly, it feels like. Yeah. So delighted this week to welcome our guest, Kat Drummond. Kat is a partner in LCP's insurance consulting practice and has over 15 years experience helping clients understand and manage their insurance risks better. She works on a wide range of insurers, including large personal lines insurers, commercial insurers and Lloyd syndicates. She is the chair of the IFOA's GI Lifelong Learning Committee and the Deputy Chair of the GI Board and a member of the IFOA's 400 Club. Kat is a founding member of LCP's LGBT Plus Network, which leads initiatives and provides support to ensure that we are providing an accepting environment for LGBT Plus individuals to thrive and prosper. So welcome, Kat. Thanks very much. Good morning, both of you. I guess it might be quite nice just to, given you've got such a great introduction there, Kat, kind of give us maybe a bit of a sense of your role and what you do and what it's like kind of doing all those really interesting jobs. <laughs> My role is a really interesting question, actually. I think it's a bit like a good all-you-can-eat buffet, which means that there's loads of variety and it's something that I get very excited about. So I guess a key part of my role, as you've said, is helping insurers across a wide variety of areas, all the usual areas that you'd expect a consultant to work in, a whole lot really, but also very much involved on the people side of things with an LCP as well. So I head up staffing responsibilities for our insurance consulting practice, help with recruitment, perform management, resourcing, publications and strategy. And then externally, I've got a number of roles in there too. You mentioned the IFOA's GI Lifelong Learning Committee. I'm very excited to be sort of chairing the upcoming Gyro Conference, which is coming up soon. I'm also, I've recently been appointed one of the members of the Senior Advisory Board for LINK, which is the insurance industry's LGBT plus network. So lots of sort of external roles, which I also get very excited about helping to promote and improve diversity and inclusion across our industry. And it's wonderful to hear you say that because one of the things that has been so obvious in the last year or two, you know, whether it's related to COVID or not, but has been the sort of sense that the welfare of individuals, the welfare of employees, of colleagues, etc., has really gone up the agenda for everyone in business. And that just feels like such a positive cultural change that's happening right now. Absolutely. And I think it's good to see that happening in our industry and sort of across more widely across society. I think it's also something that people are coming to expect more of employers. And it's really important as part of your culture and as part of your offering to new recruits that people feel that they are looked after, they're supported and that they can sort of quote unquote bring their whole selves to work. I guess, Kat, something I'm slightly interested in is I think as a firm, we're we're doing a lot. I'm sure we've still got a long way to go, but we're trying to take active steps to help ensure that where we work is a diverse and welcoming place for people to be. 
How do you think the insurance market is doing as a whole in this kind of space? That's a really good question. And I suppose, you know, slightly politicians answer is it's is different everywhere you look and every firm is different. And so therefore trying to make a sort of sweeping statement across the industry is quite tough. I mean, I've certainly been encouraged as part of my roles and sort of seeing what's going on in the industry, more and more firms being more overtly and publicly supportive, getting involved in initiatives, taking part in things like panel discussions about how they support diversity and inclusion and sort of groups of different groups of people across the spectrum, which is fantastic. I think there's obviously more to do. And I think, you know, I don't know if you've spotted, but there's been recently a a discussion paper that was jointly published by the FCA, the PRA and the Bank of England, talking about how they might play a role in terms of regulation and expectations around diversity and inclusion as part of their regulatory role for financial institutions is, again, another step forward. I think it could be a real positive there to help firms that maybe have been a little bit slow to take action to do so there. I mean, this is definitely a topic for a whole other podcast, which we definitely want to look at in the future. But today we want to talk to you about the results from the Change on the Horizon publication, which we released in the summer, looking at firms SFCRs. So Kat, do you just want to start off by giving us a bit of background to the publication before we kick off into the detail? Absolutely, yeah, of course. So what we do is we look at a hundred of the top non-life insurers across the UK and Ireland. It's loosely based on their size, so things like sort of premiums written and reserves that are PRA or CBI regulated. Typically they have December year ends, so those that, that don't sort of given the timing of our reporting don't make it into the report. But we've been doing this report since SFCRs first came out in 2017. So this year is the fifth one that, that we've done. And as SFCRs have evolved themselves over that period, so too has our analysis. So the report focuses on the number side of things, so capital coverage, for example, but also what are insurers saying about the risks that they're seeing, that they're exposed to. And also we give an idea in terms of the quality of reporting and how that's been going over time as well. And I think it's fair to say that this publication has become something of an industry standard. It's a go-to publication that I know a lot of senior people in the industry look at to try and get a sense of where is the market going, both in terms of compliance with regulation, which of course is always top of mind for in such a heavily regulated industry, but also just, you know, where is the financial strength of the UK general insurance market going and what are some of the big upcoming risks? Absolutely. And I think it lends itself really well because of the fact that there's lots of numbers and potential benchmarks in there. And we also look at things by solvency two line of business, which is kind of akin to sort of sector. It can be very helpful for insurers if they want to look at how their own sort of market and peers are doing and how they might sit. So it's, yeah, we are seeing, you know, a really good number of people downloading it and asking questions about the benchmarks and and the findings. Great. So I guess maybe let's start with a bit of a financial overview of the insurance market kind of at a high level? Sure. I mean, I suppose at a high level, not a lot has happened. If you just look at the stats, the main sort of number that I think is a really helpful one in terms of the strength of the market is the eligible own funds ratio or capital coverage, which is essentially the available capital or or own funds divided by the SCR. So how many times does a firm have its regulatory capital available? And so the higher that number is, the more buffer they have in place. And actually, if you sort of average across the hundred over the last five years or so, that's been around the sort of 205 to 209% mark. And over the last year, it's dropped a percent 
So we've gone from 209% to 208%, but still sort of pretty healthy. And given the year that we've seen, actually relatively surprising that it didn't move a bit more. But obviously, there's been winners and losers in that because obviously we look at firms at an individual level as well as at the total market level. And presumably, there's quite a wide range of solvency coverage levels when you look at it individually by insurer. Exactly right. And what you typically see is that sometimes or you know, generally the larger insurers have a lower capital coverage. And that can be because actually they've got the benefit of scale. And you'd argue that they would probably have slightly less volatility in that capital coverage than a very, very small insurer. But we do see a huge variety from those that are very much sort of sailing a, close to the wind in terms of needing to have more than, than 100%, but also the smaller firms that are having sort of 15 times what they need. But often they're within a group structure where actually there's more going on than just looking at that single entity in isolation. And I suppose for insurers that are looking to win really large clients, they tend to be driven more by rating agency requirements, which would probably tend to mean that they need to have a very high solvency coverage ratio to even be on the starting list to insure some of the big name corporations around the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously various sort of factors and reasons why capital coverage ratios are what they are. There's also things like the actual sort of internal risk appetite and, you know, what a board is comfortable with in terms of what they want that capital coverage ratio to be. So, you know, we don't see that level of detail disclosed across all 100 firms, but we might see that some firms say that actually our target range is between 125 and 150% for one firm. And another firm might actually say that our target range is around about the 175% ratio. Both are fine in terms of regulatory, you know, keeping the regulators happy, but they just have a different stated appetite in terms of their target range. Have we seen any particular lines of business or sectors kind of growing in recent years? That's a good question. It's kind of hard to get a definitive answer on that based on the data that is available, because whilst we do have grocery and premiums as a reported item, we don't have a sort of proper exposure measure. So we don't know whether just rates are going up or actually the volume of business is going up. But what I can say is that we have seen sort of strong and steady increases in grocery and premium across the fire and other damage and also general liability lines over the last five years. And that's consistent with the market hardening over that period. Conversely, we've seen decreases in motor vehicle liability and also income protection lines. And I think that specifically for income protection, COVID-19 has meant that a number of insurers have pulled their products from that market. And that could explain some of the reduction that we're seeing there, albeit only in the last year and not over the last full five years. And I think them sort of pulling those products from the market will only harden rates for those remaining in it. I'd also say that over the last year, we've seen a reduction in the gross rent premiums for credit and surety ship lines. Again, not a massive surprise and driven at least in part by COVID and firms limiting their exposures to these policies too. I suppose one area that we we certainly know anecdotally has grown very strongly in recent years is cyber insurance. It's sort of emerging opportunity for many insurers. It's an area where we know the risks are not very well understood because the risks themselves are morphing at such a rapid rate. I guess one concern that I have is whether the solvency stats that companies disclose will have enough allowance in them for the kind of unknowability of that cyber risk in the future. 
I think that's a really good question and a good point. Really only time will tell in that sense. Cyber is not a sort of solvency two line of business in and of itself. And, and obviously there will be aspects to certain policies where it's a silent aspect of that policy and so firms wouldn't necessarily break that out in detail and report it separately. And as you say, that market is growing. So I guess we'll see whether pricing has been sensible, whether policies that didn't originally expect to have cyber coverages in there, but do turn out to have been charging enough in order to cover the costs of those claims. I think obviously firms are tightening up their wording on cyber. And so there are fewer policies out there that have those silent exposures going forwards, because actually it's all about being very clear on what the exposures are and the coverages. So possibly less of an issue going forwards as those legacy liabilities run off, but still a very current issue that insurers are concerned about. I guess another current issue that you highlight in the report, and it's good to see some improvement in this area, but I get the impression still a way to go is climate change risk. So yeah, what's the market doing on climate change risk? Climate change. In all honesty, it's from SFCR specifically, it's hard to tell because whilst we do say and we noted that 60% of firms mentioned climate change and that's been an increase on last year and we've seen a steady increase over the last few years, I'd say our bar is very low in terms of mentioning climate change. You basically just have to utter the words climate change and that gets you into that 60%. And actually, given that and given how high it is on the agenda, I would have expected that 60% to be higher given the regulatory expectations around that and certainly the sort of disclosure requirements. So I would expect that number to go up going forwards, but at least firms now are starting to mention the fact that they believe that they're exposed to it, a little bit of detail in some cases as to where they think their exposures are and potentially some sort of scenario testing to better understand what the financial impact might be on that. I think from my perspective, it does appear that the insurance industry's response to climate change risk at the moment at least is being largely led by regulators and regulatory requirements rather than by firms themselves. Do you have any views on why that is and whether that's a good thing? I think it's a good thing that there is action happening as a result of, as you note, the regulatory sort of intervention and sort of stating expectations has chivied the industry along a little bit. I think it's always a shame if it takes regulatory intervention to see that action. But I can understand, obviously, that it's sort of a little bit difficult to know where to start. And also, if you, you know, there's, there are obvious benefits of being a leader in this space and finding you know, opportunities to actually turn it into, from a profitability point of view, a good thing for the business. Actually, there's expectations now from policyholders and the the wider public to do the right thing when it comes to climate change, which is really, really important. But, you know, similarly on the diversity side of things, if, if it takes regulatory intervention to get that action going, I think that's a good thing. And then the momentum and what you see everybody else doing in the market hopefully brings everybody along on the ride and helps to improve things. One of the key parts of the regulation around climate change risk is scenario analysis. Have firms kind of discussed much in their SFCRs what they're doing in this area? 
Not as much as I would like, but some have. And as you said, you know, the PRA have noted the importance of scenario analysis to better understand the potential outcomes of climate change. So I think in our report, we flagged three firms that sort of went into a bit of detail in terms of the analysis that they've done. AIG talked about the fact that they volunteered to take part in the PRA exercise to understand the impact of climate litigation actions. So where draft litigation scenarios were provided by the PRA and they ran and some sort of associated numbers. They also talked about the fact that things like their long-tailed lines, so DNO and liability lines, are particularly exposed to things like economic transition risks. So an example of that is if courts determine that companies fail to respond or take appropriate actions, that might in turn result in more claims on those policies. So they're sort of talking about that in their disclosures. Fidelis also gave some numbers in terms of the impact of climate change on underwriting and investment performance. So it was nice to see some actual sort of numbers being disclosed. Talked about a solvency drop going from 152% as they currently are down to 116, which is you know gives you an idea of the quantum of the impact of the scenario that they ran. And Lloyds Bank General Insurance also crunched some numbers and talked about the fact that they've got in-house specialist teams of modellers, which was interesting to sort of hear about. And again, they sort of provided a range in terms of the increase in annual claims cost being from somewhere from 5% to 43% over time horizons out to the end of this, this century. So it's good to see some numbers put around it. And obviously, all these numbers are, you know, have a wide range of uncertainty, but it's good to get an idea of the quantums. And I think that's also a key thing that even if at this stage it can be quite crude analysis, just trying to do something and trying to start getting a number on it does help to some extent in terms of you know moving the conversation forward and then being able to improve on that. Exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And it's going to be a building process and it's going to be looking at, obviously, modelling is going to start improving over the next few years and that will help inform the scenarios. And also people's understanding of how this these risks might crystallise will improve as well. But the key part of it is starting somewhere and then you've got a base for next year to continue to improve on that journey. So standing back a little bit from all of this, I'm keen to get your view on whether all of this disclosure that firms have had to do the last few years via the SFCR, do you think that's a positive thing or what do you think are some of the key advantages? And also perhaps looking ahead, if you were able to set the rules, how would you improve that disclosure in the future? That's a good one. I mean, obviously, given I sort of head up the Pillar 3 reporting that we do, I would say that SFCRs are useful, wouldn't I? But I do accept that there is a sort of widely held view across some in the market that SFCRs aren't that useful to policyholders. And that is really one of the target audiences is policyholders. And I do have sympathy with that. I guess if you think about a lot of the information that is in the SFCRs already exists in other public documents, so things like annual report and accounts and all that kind of thing. But a key difference really is that you don't have consistency across annual report and accounts. You have different sort of reserving bases, etc. So getting a feel for, for example, the relative strength and security of a company is very difficult to do unless you have a consistent starting basis. So I do think it's really important that there is an aspect of consistency so that you can compare across the market. 
One thing that I think is really interesting is that actually the European Commission has some recent proposals around the changes to Solvency 2 and the sort of upcoming review by EOPA. And they talked about splitting the SFCR into two documents effectively. So the first one, which is sort of shorter and very much more focused on useful information for policyholders. And then the second part of it being more aimed at analysts. And, and actually, I don't have a problem with that. I think that's sort of very sensible way to go. The question is, how does that fit in with the UK? Because given Brexit, we're no longer bound by the Solvency 2 rules, even if they change, unless the PRA decide that that's what they'll sort of bring into UK regulations. So it's going to be an interesting time because the PRA are doing their own review of Solvency 2 and reporting and how well they will follow any upcoming changes or deviate from them, I think remains to be seen. But I think the more that we can do to talk about risk exposures and to better understand scenario analysis, to understand how exposed firms are to risks, I think that's really useful information for policyholders and also for analysts. And I'm going to push you slightly here, Kat. Do you have a view on what the PRA will do with regards to continuing to follow EOPA guidance as it comes out? to kind of maintain as aligned as possible with Europe? Or do you think that they will revise how we do Solvency 2? I would be surprised if there isn't a deviation from Solvency 2. I think there is enough, there are enough views on how Solvency 2 needs to change going forwards to, for, you know, aspects around the risk margin, aspects around transitional measures and all that kind of thing that, you know, in inverted commas need fixing. And it's not necessarily going to be the case that the PRA will fix these things in the same way as EOPA will. I think the key thing is that it will be very important for the PRA to not change the rules so much that we're no longer deemed equivalent, because obviously that will have knock-on implications in terms of insurers doing business and, you know, the regulatory capital that they will need to hold. So it's an, it's an interesting one there. I think it will change. I don't know by how much. In your experience, what have been some of the ways that firms have made use of your annual survey in their own sort of strategic and risk management discussions? I think the benchmarking aspect has been really helpful. And that's where we've seen a number of questions come in, in particular, either by taking the benchmarks directly from the report in terms of, for example, capital coverage to understand where they sit in the market, perhaps, you know, across the whole market or within the sector that they work in. Alternatively, they've asked us to do very specific bespoke peer analysis. Of course, we have the data available to us across the, the whole of Europe which is great. And so it means that we can do bespoke analysis in that sense. Also, I guess, to the extent that there's new and emerging risks and how much that is being talked about, that's a key focus for our report as well. So I think our commentary on, on who is saying what in terms of climate change, cyber risk, you know, Brexit is less of an issue now, but was a few years ago, and conduct risk, I think is a helpful bar when firms are looking to put their reporting together. Perhaps a recurring theme in this discussion that we've had today is, is that it seems to be the case that a risk appears on the horizon, people become aware of it, and then there's quite a long delay before that risk starts to appear in things like SFCR disclosures. Do you think that is because firms are focusing on the risk appropriately internally, but there's just a certain amount of work required to get it into formal disclosures? Or do you think it's symptomatic of the fact that the insurance industry is dealing with the issues of today and struggles slightly to free up thinking time for the risks of tomorrow? 
I think it probably depends on the the companies that you're talking about specifically. Obviously, you know, there'll be a varying qualities and approaches to risk management, albeit that it's a very important part of all of all insurers and, and what they do. I think there is a little bit of a lag in terms of what makes its way into a public report. I just think that that's the sort of nature of the beast. Firms need to work out what they're doing first initially and how they're doing it before they start sort of telling the world about it. So I do think that firms are, at least most firms are sort of managing that risk or at least have it on their risk registers and recognize it as something that's on the horizon. As you say, the question is, what are they doing about it and how quickly are they doing something about it? And also, you know, are they quantifying it and understanding it and raising it with the right people? It's hard to know when the only sort of window of insight through this lens is through the SFCR. But yeah, I guess that's my answer to that question. I feel like I'm going to take us back in the conversation slightly because we kind of skirted around the issue of COVID. And I don't feel like we can talk about how the insurance market has performed over the last few years and not go into a bit of detail on it. So I feel we've done quite well to get this far through the podcast without discussing it. Absolutely. So I guess <laughs> from your kind of review, Kat, what has been the financial impact on firms from COVID-19? I think it depends who you talk to. So, for example, if you speak to a motor insurer, you'll probably find that they've had a pretty good couple of years or year or so. As people have been driving a lot less, there have been fewer accidents, therefore fewer claims. Obviously, we're sort of getting a little bit back to more normal levels of traffic going forwards. And actually, what we saw is a few of them gave policyholders some premium refunds in recognition of this good news coming through. But in practice, I think their unexpected profits have been far greater than their premium refunds would suggest. Of course, on the other hand, other firms, particularly those writing things like credit, income protection, business continuity is obviously a big one and, and sort of pretty high profile, event cancellation and travel, they've struggled. So of the 100 firms that we looked at this year, 13 specifically disclosed that they'd recently received capital injections, typically from their parent companies to help with their capital coverage because often they've seen a sort of, of drop. And is that high compared to the norm? It's not something we actually looked at previously. And also there's been more disclosure in the last year or so. So actually the fact that people are talking about it more, you know, I do think that there are more than in previous years. And certainly the sort of quantums were pretty sizable for some firms and they talked about it being specifically because there'd been a drop and they needed to get back to their sort of stated appetite of capital coverage. I can't say that definitively, but that's certainly my feeling. It certainly sounds like it's likely to be the case, yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing in terms of capital coverage that's worth talking about is we did see an interesting stat that the proportion of firms using tier two capital to support their SCRs has, has doubled. So don't want to get into the complexities of the differences in different tiers of capital. But the idea really is that tier two is sort of less high quality and less available than tier one is. So it does suggest that the quality of capital available to support obligations has deteriorated a little bit. You know, it was, I think, 5% of firms were using tier two capital and now it's 10%. But still, the fact that that has doubled over, over a year that's sort of seen COVID and, and lots of capital injections, it was an interesting one. What other changes have we seen due to COVID? That's a good, good one. I think COVID has fast forwarded a few aspects of the way that we live and work for the better. I think the most obvious one is our ability to work remotely and more flexibly than ever before. And I think some firms pre-COVID weren't really properly set up for this. And also there was, I think, certain cultures that were pretty against this way of working. 
But of course, we found almost overnight that when push comes to shove, we can work remotely en masse and we can make it work as an industry as well. And I think had the pandemic not happened, we'd be at least a decade behind where we currently now are in terms of the way we work. The other thing that I would say has changed, and I think this is fantastic, is things like ESG and diversity and inclusion issues have been fast forwarded as well, I think. I think they've had the opportunity to come to the fore and be discussed in a way that we just didn't really see pre-COVID. I don't think it's specifically COVID that has directly caused this, but I think the timing was right. And I think having a huge shock to everybody across the world brought us to sort of look back and reevaluate what's important, um, particularly against, you know, a backdrop of increased regulatory expectations in these areas. And things like, you know, recent movements such as Black Lives Matter, Extinction Rebellion and the like has just brought these issues to the fore in a way that we haven't seen previously. Thanks so much, Kat. That's been a really interesting discussion. We talked at the beginning quite a bit about your fantastic CV. What's the one thing we wouldn't find on your CV? I would say that I used to be a full-time musician and I have a particular penchant for cinema organs like the ones that accompany silent movies around 100 years ago and also the one that's still played pretty much every day at the Blackpool Tower and which I have played myself and very, very proud to say that. So I get very excited when they crop up on TV, which they do from time to time if you're looking out for them. And I guess on that, any recommendations of what you've been reading, watching or listening to? Doesn't have to be insurance focused, recognising we have lives as well. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think a lot of people are talking about Squid Game at the moment, which is really, really good on Netflix. I understand that if you're able to watch it in its native Korean language, then it's even better than it is in in English, because I understand some of the nuances have been a little bit lost in translation. But I've certainly really enjoyed watching that over the last few days. I'm also, I'm not really much of a reader myself. I'm pretty slow at reading, but I'm actually making my way currently through Stephen Catlin's book risk and reward that came out a couple of years ago and actually it's a really great read and gives excellent insights into the insurance industry so if you kind of want to read that and understand that from a sort of business sense then that's great and if you want to watch some korean games going on then squid uh, Squid game is what you need to (laughs) that's all we have time for this week on insurance uncut please join us in two weeks time for another episode This podcast was brought to you by LCP. We'd like to thank Nikki Freegard, Deepika Misra, and Matthew Passy for helping to produce this episode. This podcast is for information purposes only and should not be taken as advice. All views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are purely their own opinions and do not represent those of LCP, its clients or affiliates. LCP makes no warranty, guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast.